Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. began with the mass disappearance of every living superhero on Earth, except not really. Inexplicably, well, very explicably, they all materialized within an Earth-orbiting athletic stadium that had not existed until mere seconds before. Their abductors are the galactic gamesmen known as Nico Action, and this is X is for Podcast Champion Contest Fight Book Comic Podcast. Yes! <laughs> I am incredibly proud of myself. Absolutely none of you are always on the show, so I can't even say with me as always. With me, as usually occasional, is the mighty Jonah. Bonjour. Now he's fucking French. With me, the second most occasionally, the incredible Kevo. Howdy. You know, come to think of it, I don't think there was like a southern or midwestern hero on this team. But speaking of midwestern heroes, we have... Warpath Dylan. Konnichiwa. Oh my god. We're everything that this book was supposed to be. Representing all things straight. We have Mikey, who doesn't want that moniker. And I could not possibly do this show without my best friend in the whole wide world, the guy I love to work out with and to sit and talk about how frustrating I find Final Fantasy IX, Kyle. Krakakum! Krakakum! So, I didn't miss anybody, right? There's just so many of us. I can go twice if you want. Alus. I want to welcome everybody back to the Contest of Champions. We spent an amazing episode discussing the many facets of this story in its conceptual narrative form. This was Marvel's first ever crossover attempt, and it was to hopefully design a line of action figures. One of the things that the Marvel Universe had seen incredible success with was an intentional decision to create diversity on a team. The most notable example of this would, of course, be Uncanny X-Men's relaunch under the pen of Len Wein and, inevitably, and inimitably, Chris Claremont. Now, Jonah, you are the king of Uncanny with me, and in a lot of ways, this does sort of feel like a reflection on what the Uncanny X-Men did in Giant Size Number 1. How did this compare to that? Well, I guess they elicited similar feelings of this is terrible and I don't know why this was made. But I think when I was first reading this and first reading about what the Contest of Champions was going to be and what the story was supposed to tell, I actually got a very excited because I was like, oh, this is cool. You're pitting Earth's mightiest heroes against one another to see kind of who's the best, but not really because this was just a game to bring back Game Master's brother, but... It's going to be much more complicated than that, but not really. Hey, hey, whatever it takes to get Jeff Goldblum back. Really? Because I thought his brother looked like Magneto, but that's beside the point. <laughs> no, no, he's the collector. It's, um, it's, oh wait, no, is that Benicio Del Toro? Yes, wait, no. Yeah. Because the one, no, because Games Master is, so, okay, Games Master is Jeff, so the whole plot here is that Jeff Goldblum is trying to bring Benicio Del Toro back. So I guess if you think about it, it's kind of like sibling Jurassic Park. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> oh, man. Nobody came with me on that one. I am very alone in the Humvee, and we are just cruising past the Velociraptors. Okay. But bringing new talent, new characters can be kind of exciting, but it's a problem that I had in Giant Size X-Men number one in that you have too many people and nobody really has a voice that's distinguished or makes you want to read more about them unless you already know about them. So, Mikey, yeah. this was your first time reading a number of characters you know now back then. What was it like trying to adjust to these very different iterations? You said you came in on Secret Invasion and Civil War. So, the Invisible Woman you know is a powerfully self-possessed matriarch of the Marvel Universe who still knows how to throw down. This character, while strong and dynamic, much more timid. Was it like that with a number of the characters for you? I did not like the racist Wolverine in this one. Certainly not. Wasn't the Wolverine I know. Like you mentioned with Invisible Woman, she's more of a stronger character and one that takes charge and can kind of counteract Reed. And then this one, I, I didn't... I didn't like it in that sense, just because it wasn't what I was used to and what I knew. I don't know what my opinion would be if I read it in 1982 and then continued on until 2006. So, but having read the stuff in 2006 first, I prefer my versions of the characters better than what was given here. I completely agree. And one of the things I really loved about watching you come into your fandom, right? There's like kinds of, there's two sort of ways to get woke, right? There's somebody kind of being like, I'm turning on the light. It is time to wake up. Here are bad things. And you're like, oh, I'm woke now. And then there's sort of like, you have to shake the person, throw ice buckets of water on them, punch them in the stomach a few times, right? Mikey definitely falls in that first category. He falls in the group of people who just kind of came to, oh, people need protecting. Got it. And so it's been really fascinating to watch you transform into somebody who is very aware of the cultural need for acceptance and visibility. And I would like to imagine that if you read this in 1982, you might have been okay with it. But as soon as somebody told you it was a problem, you'd have caught up to 2019. Yeah, I'd like to think so. Speaking of catching up to 2019, Dylan, you read this in what form? Did you read this on the app or did you read this in physical I read it on the app. Okay, so you read it on the app. Now, here's a question for you. As somebody who's read a lot of old comics, a lot of classic comics, do you find there is a difference between reading something like this on Pulp Inc. and reading it on the app? Yes. Just having a physical copy, I think, can kind of help you understand, like Mikey was saying, when you're reading certain things and certain things that characters are saying. But the physical copy can kind of get the sense of, maybe they weren't trying to be as racist or misogynistic as they wanted to be back then, but reading it on an app. <laughs> so there's something about like the paper quality and the fading that kind of creates a context for the fact that yes. it's older, but these hyper cleaned up copies on the app, they look a little too pretty to be taken into context. Correct. I could see that. I really can too. Kyle, you've been with me on all of this crazy champion stuff in general, and we've had a number of ups and downs in terms of the presentation of Darkstar. What was it like coming back to this title after all this time and seeing Darkstar be treated like she's like a full-fledged fucking member of the Marvel Universe? I think Darkstar gets as many lines as the Invisible Woman, if not more. I actually really like that. She was one of my redeeming qualities in Champions, even though she had such a limited influence on what happened. So 
actually seeing her becoming such a integral part of her own team and having an effect in this storyline was actually kind of nice. I very much agree with that. I think seeing her brought to the forefront really helped express something I needed from her, which was that sort of stability and that consistency with the vibe that is the Marvel Universe. It's almost a, a palpable feeling on your tongue when somebody fits in the Marvel Universe right. It's it's something that's difficult to express when it's right, but it's really easy to point out when it's wrong. And I think Dark Star fits right in very easily here. Of course, the character I feel that sticks out like a sore thumb is my precious Brian. This doesn't feel like Brian. This doesn't feel like Captain Britain. It feels like a throwback to the Claremont era. Like maybe they sat down with the great CC and they said, Hey, CC, tell us all about the CB who's really BB. <laughs> so, KR, I guess my question for you is, did you feel like Captain Britain was a muted form of the character you and I already know and love here? I don't think that anybody really shined in this story, unfortunately, you know, because there's such limited space for any character really to do so. A lot of characters sort of came across poorly. I agree. They came across very one-dimensional, and that's an unfortunate thing. If this was supposed to generate sales and interest, I don't know that this generated sales and interest on my part, but I do know that it kept me reading till the end. This first battle, Grandmasters Talisman, Daredevil, and Darkstar versus the Unknowns Sunfire, Invisible Woman, and Iron Fist. Did anybody have a favorite horse in this race? Did anybody say, no, 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 if Person X doesn't win, these writers are crazy? Well, it's funny because I mentioned them earlier, but they're on opposing teams. I was rooting for both Daredevil and Sue Storm, so I don't really know that I was rooting for one team versus the other so much as individual characters, especially because this outcome, like whichever team won, it wasn't going to necessarily have an, an enormous impact on Earth and our heroes. So like the ultimate contest was mostly inconsequential for us. It was more about who you wanted to see win. And I think in that way, they were able to allow people to win without necessarily degradating the losing character. When Marvel vs. DC occurred in the 90s, they were very protective of who could win and who could lose. For instance, Robin defeated Jubilee with the cunning use of his penis. Fuck. Oh my god, he just like flirts with her till she gives up. It's so stupid. But, yeah, it's real bad. But, at the same time, Marvel would be unwilling to let Wolverine lose to Lobo. So, there was kind of a trade-off there, and I feel like that was the kind of game they played here. That said, looking at this lineup, I'm kind of baffled if Darkstar and Invisible Woman aren't the last two standing. Darkstar has uh, unbelievable energy powers, and the Invisible Woman is like, she's fucking Franklin Richards' mom, are you kidding me? So, I, I mean, literally, Sue Storm one time held back an entire Latvian army. Like, she's so fucking powerful. And I feel very much like the fact that my precious Daredevil wins is a Mike Murdoch-level mistake, and uh, should have never happened. I'm thrilled, because I love him, and he's my everything, but, like, I have a hard time believing that Daredevil should ever be able to best Iron Fist. If nothing else, the spiritual teachings of Kunlun 
give him the same edge as Daredevil's radar sense. Mikey, as somebody who primarily knows the live media more than the paper media, did you have a, a person that you were like, no, what the fuck? They went down like a brat. What happened? They say that Invisible Woman is the strongest character in the MCU because if she was up against the Hulk, she would just put a, a bubble in his throat until it burst. So I'm kind of shocked that her team didn't win. But going in, I mean, I wanted the Grandmaster's team to win. So it was kind of like whoever was on that team, I was like, I guess that's who I was rooting for, regardless of who it was. As long as I win, I don't care who loses. I get the feeling. I'm, I'm really with you on that. Now, Kyle, Jonah, Dylan, the three of you have experience with these characters in our titles before. I would love to know what three people who have been following these characters for a little while very closely feel about these team ups. I was on anybody but not Sunfire. I do not like Sunfire. I do not like how he is written. He is way too abrasive and mean. So as much as I like Sue Storm and I have no qualms with Danny Rand Iron Fist, I was on team not Sunfire. Uh, Yeah. uh, So Dylan, I know you joined the show in our second season, but if you think Angel is unpopular now... Let me just catch you up real quick. (laughs) Sunfire was the definition of unpopular. So we basically hated Angel, Iceman, and Sunfire from the beginning. And we've had hate come and go for everyone ever since. Got it. Yeah, when it came to this matchup. So yeah, even though I wasn't a part of the first season and I completely understand it, reading an older book like this, I'm always going to have a biased opinion and want the team that has a mutant on it to win and especially one that I know more about. And so I was rooting for Sue and Sunfire. Please don't hate me or fire me. No, no I completely fine. understand you're... it. I was, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm a big Sue guy. Fine. I love Sue Storm. At the end of the day, I'm always going to be Daredevil. Daredevil is my main man, and Danny Rand is, like, my number two. Though, I do need to point out, in a perfect world, Danny Rand would be an Asian American, and he would be played by Daniel Day Kim, and everything would be what I've needed it to be my entire life. I have a number of issues with the fact that a good portion of the powerful representation of Asian culture in the Marvel Universe, whether it is Kunlun and Iron Fist, or it's Khonshu and Moon Knight, I very much resent the white face of Asian mysticism in the Marvel Universe, despite enjoying the characters immensely. And I guess in that regard, it's my fault for financially supporting these titles. But I also would like to point out that frequently Iron Fist is partnered with a Power Man. Power Man is traditionally a name that belongs to a Black hero, and they have done excellent work creating a new Power Man that Iron Fist trained for a number of years that spun out of Daredevil's Shadowland. So that at least brings everything back to Daredevil. Jonah, I gotta know what you think about this story. So this fight is... Okay, so my opinion on this team, and it's something I brought to Nico's attention, in that in the entire Marvel Universe, the closest that anybody picked to a psychic or telepath seems to be Talisman. Why was that not somebody's like first pick, like their first draft? Wouldn't that be the, one of the most quintessential powers for some kind of contest like this where you're trying to locate something somebody while she's not a hero like oracle would have been amazing or somebody like that moon dragon is a hero and moon dragon is a telepath and here i think they didn't use xavier because they would have needed to bring their tractor beam for his wheelchair and that would have 
giant size Fantastic Four to this right up. So at the end of the day, I completely agree with you. The lack of telepaths is bizarre. I don't know that they would ever permit this now without a telepath because one of the things that telepathy offers a story is a really dynamic sense of visual interpretation like jonah i know whether it's you and i with shaman over on alpha flight with mikey or it's dazzler using her powers to create illusions with dylan just straight up uncanny where dr strange has appeared alongside margarly zardos we've seen so many beautiful and dynamic interpretations of mysticism oh the marvel team-up stuff with the gardener over with kyle where we had the champions crossover i feel like we've seen so many dynamic interpretations of mysticism, you're really right. Whether it's telepathy or magic, there's something so missing from this story. Kyle, Jonah, the two of you covered so much of that with me and together. Did you guys feel that there was a very dry, battle-based element to this? I don't know. You know... uh, Wow, I don't... I... It definitely felt like it was... uh, (laughs) And I even get what you're saying, because as I was saying it, I felt kind of conflicted. Like... It just feels very like these battles are on the nose. Pitting She-Hulk against Sabra is just very punchy-punch. I I need to point out, though, that I think the ultimate expression of what I'm trying to say comes on the last page. She-Hulk tries to choke Iron Man out in his suit. It's just bizarre that She-Hulk literally knows Iron Man and is like, I'm gonna choke you through a metal suit, I guess. And Darkstar's powers are like the engulfing power of the Dark Force. And her powers are used primarily as energy blasts and not any of the really... And a giant hand. Yeah, that's that's a little bit closer to what I would come to expect from Darkstar. Every single contest, except for maybe the last one, boils down to everybody going by themselves and them saying, we can't work together. Then what was the point of picking people for a team battle if... Every single person is going to say, I work better solo. Yeah, that is really reductive. Yeah, I had that same issue. It kind of felt like they needed to connect each duo in these battles with matching power, almost. Yeah, that's that's part of what I mean, I think, by how literal the fights became. They got very, like, on-the-nose punchy-punchy. And I think when it wasn't the narrative story getting a little too punchy-punchy, the art didn't always move me. Now, like I said, I am an enormous JRJR fan, and he did in fact draw this issue as well, but if I could just direct everybody's attention to the first page of Chapter 3, the second contest, there is just this moment where I can't help but notice everybody's area is sort of highlighted in a really dramatic fashion except Captain Britain, but they're trying to cover his area because it's uncut, and... I, because this is American comics and it's the, it's, I'm very funny and topical. Please see our first episode (laughs) about Captain Britain where I explain that Captain Britain is exactly Captain America, just bigger and taller and uncut. They're trying to highlight everyone's area, but no one's area is more highlighted than She-Hulk's. Also, why was She-Hulk's clothes tattered, but not anybody else's? She appeared with clothes, but no, I thought she appeared hulked out with her outfit intact. Oh yeah, that's a really good point. Oh, you know what? I'm thinking about it. Blitzkrieg would probably be uncut too. (laughs) Because he's German. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. And and, probably Arabian Night. (laughs) And you can't forget Peregrine. 
Yeah, you know, okay. I'm really thinking about it. This should just be called like the uncut contest of champions. <laughs> I think this oh, is really wow. I think that's really I I here's my I'm just saying, right? Like nobody is calling this like, you know, the docking contest. <laughs> I think the thing to remember is that they really are trying to represent an international squadron of heroes. And in that regard, I do believe that, you know, uncutness aside, I, it's things like Sabra's hair looking very differently textured than everyone else's hair. I actually do think that is lovely. I think it's important to remember that hair texture is real and it is necessary to a cultural identity and a racial identity. This is really important to keep in mind when you're trying to construct a character and make sure they represent something. Now, Mikey, I know you speak Polish, right? Yep. So when you are watching something or hear something, or was it something that you could hear somebody be like completely off and you'd be like, no, that takes me out of the moment. If you were to see it in a comic book where somebody didn't do the work to research how to properly write in Polish, it would probably bother you, right? Oh, yeah. And something in a media form, whereas a movie, a comic, a show, subtitle, something. Yeah. I mean, that's just laziness. A hundred percent, which is why I really want to go out of my way to say that J.R.J.R. really did do some nice work in constructing racial and cultural identity in this title. And I do just need to give the man that. He would go on to draw Anne Nesenti's unreal run of Daredevil. J.R.J.R.'s interpretation of Blackheart is one of the most iconic of all time. He would have a breathtaking run on The Eternals beautiful run on Amazing Spider-Man. I believe he did New Ways to Die with Dan Slott. And of course, Frank Miller and John Romita Jr.'s Daredevil, The Man Without Fear 1 through 5 is one of the most eternally important pieces of comic literature ever. Funny note, the cover stock, the cardboard, used a very specific type of red chromium that had first been picked for a Deadpool book by X-Men editor Suzanne Gaffney. Suzanne Gaffney was the person who worked with Warren Ellis, getting Warren Ellis onto Excalibur, ultimately giving me my very precious Pete wisdom. So all sort of a weird, interconnected kind of nonsensiness. But back to our wonderfully uncut heroes and their giant areas, I do think that Ghost Town Showdown hits a very funny and kind of silly point in the Marvel Universe that I love. The Marvel Universe never gives up on its love of Westerns for some reason. And is this is just like straight up an... Yeah, this is just like an old-timey saloon fight. Well, you know, an old-timey saloon fight where a giant green woman punches a giant Arabian bodybuilder off of his flying carpet, but you know. Yeah, that sounds historically accurate. Oh, it sure does. I also frequently in this battle think that Sabra is like some sort of like chinchilla because of her cape, specifically when she's surfing on Captain Britain. Mm, I think mm -hmm. she looks very much like a chinchilla. Kyle, Dylan, you guys were taking your notes. Did anything in the art stand out on this title? Honestly, I don't remember anything really sticking out. But looking back through it now, there was that one panel where with Captain Britain where the colors just kind of disappear. Oh, yes. Oh, the yes. Captain Britain. Yes, yes. <laughs> As a color artist, I understand what they were doing. Because they're trying to convey the movement of his flip, but you really need to be careful of the colors that you're using and what you are layering white over because 
if it just comes out flesh tone, you gotta work on that because it just didn't it didn't look right. It really does come down to how the writing and the art are able to come together to give us one cohesive idea. It's about finding a way to blend the action with the words and finding a middle ground that tells us what our heroes are about and what they're doing. One of the things I have enjoyed the most about going through this run of titles with these amazing, amazing contributors has been getting a chance to see everybody's reaction to different artists. Mikey, I know you were blown away by some of John Byrne's work in early Alpha Flight. I remember you commenting that you were surprised that the issue was as old as it was when it looked as good as it did. Yeah, uh, I think that they, compared to what else came out at the time, I think it was special care and it really looked like a comic book and it didn't look like it was hand-drawn. It looked like somebody took the time and they, and they tried and they cared about what they did. I really, really agree. Let's actually do a little bit of a sound off on classic artists. Dylan, is there anybody from this era of classic art that really stands out in your memory? I think my answer is probably the same as one of your answers, but that would be Burn. Oh, yeah, man. You just can't get away from Burn. You just can't. For my money, the guy who's really starting to cut his teeth right now is Alan Davis. Over at Marvel UK, Alan Davis is just getting started on Captain Britain, and he is just beginning to invent that larger-than-life form. Nobody does size like Alan Davis. It's like Alan Davis was meant to draw bodybuilders. Kevo, I know you've kind of sampled a little bit of everything. You've had a hint of burn over on Marvel Team Up. You've had a smattering of Romita Jr. here on Contest of Champions. I know that you kind of had an ever-rotating weird bit of art with Captain Britain, where frequently the last page was colored by crayon or something? Has there been any change that you've noticed going from backup stories in the Marvel UK titles to these larger books here in the US? Consistent art. Yeah, okay, that this is these three issues were all drawn by the same guy, and you frequently couldn't get an eight-page story drawn by one guy. Yeah, right? And like the colors would disappear and come back, so I'm just I'm just happy to see everyone look the same consistently throughout a three-issue arc. Except Captain Britain, who loses his color while he's jumping. But I guess that, oh no, Captain Britain has color runs disease. Okay, I'm going to complain about Brian Braddock looking naked. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I can't remotely complain about Brian getting naked. And man, does Brian get naked forever. But before Brian can get naked, Kyle, Jonah, the two of you have been the architects building this blueprint of comic book madness with me. What artists have most stood out for you two as contributors on X's for Podcasts so far. I'm going to go against the green a little bit because I could say Dave Cockrum or John Byrne because both of their arts are pretty amazing and distinctive and help bring to life what I've read for the X-Men. But I'm going to say George Perez. Oh my god, the one George Perez issue was just so worth it. I think we actually know we had two because we had a backup George Perez story in the Phoenix Apocrypha. So great call. Oh, Perez, the master of form and movement. Perez moved the center of the body in the comic book form. And it was just such a transformative, transformative thing. George Perez is, of course, best known for his epic run on the New Teen Titans, some of which was with Marv Wolfman. He would go on to do incredibly notable things later in his career, like JLA Avengers, one of the best-known Marvel DC crossovers of all time. He's continuing to do dynamic, bold work right now. He has a creator-owned title in which he makes sure to spotlight diversity in all the ways that matter and in all the ways that count. You should definitely get your ass on the internet and look up George Perez. If I have not praised him every time he has come up, I have not done my job as a comic historian. So I really, really thank Thank you for bringing up George Perez. 
great guy, beautiful work, still making gorgeous work to this day. And speaking of gorgeous, great, beautiful guys, Kyle, what art has stood out for you? So I, I'll be honest, I have a really hard time remembering who draws what, but if I remember correctly, Byrne was the person that I was surprised had drawn a champion's issue and then like completely upgraded when we got to, to the Dark Phoenix saga, right? Yes, he had drawn champions 11 through 16, cutting his teeth with Marvel's Maniac Mutants over on Champions, working with Iceman and Angel, characters that he would later then want to see returned to the X-Men. Angel would come back to the X-Men toward the end of Byrne's run, but as Byrne would leave, so would Angel. So yeah, that's great memory for a guy who started that off with, I have a terrible memory on these things. (laughs) Well, thank you. I think it's a little unfortunate that John Byrne has faded from a warm light over the last few years with some of his more upsetting comments, and I do find that very frustrating. I remain an incredible fan of his early work, and I will continue to sing the praises of the quality of his art as it was. I enjoyed his Superman I enjoy his X-Men. I enjoy his Fantastic Four. Unfortunately, he has, you know, burned that bridge. But it has always been beautiful looking at John Byrne's classic art. I know we mentioned it in the first episode, but this was the issue that had a lot of the Sunfire getting beaten by Darkstar and complaining that he was losing to a woman and all the back and forth between Sabra and Arabian Night, the racial comments and such. We wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't take the time to talk about the things that we find wrong, inappropriate, out of time. As important as these books were to help inform the modern Marvel Universe and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as I can't imagine an endgame that didn't follow a contest of champions, it is unavoidable that the racial overtones and the problematic treatment of women were par for the course. And that made it so that every time a woman broke into comics, or every time a black man broke into comics, or God forbid, a black woman in the 1980s, the uphill struggle was so monumental that they also faced it in their creative world. Every time a woman read this, she had to feel like this hero was degrading her. And that's just disgusting. And really, a failure on the part of our heroes to create work that would inspire. The only thing I would say for this three issues in particular, when it was meant to sell action figures in 1982, if you look at old advertisements for action figures, they were all played with by boys. Not saying women and girls didn't, but girls... No, but the advertisements, yeah. Right, the commercials and advertisements for girls were um, like Barbies or dolls or Easy Bake Oven or uh, cabbage patches you know stuff like that so i think what they were doing at the time was gearing towards those 10 year old boys to have their parents go buy them action figures and i don't think that in 1982 they were going to get that with girls I'm not saying that there weren't any but I, I don't think that was the target demographic i understand because I, I feel it can be very difficult to strike a balance between talking about a systematic form of oppression and feeling like you're encouraging that oppression. That's not what you're talking about here. You're saying that statistically the advertising was not done in a way that included women as a target audience, whether or not women played with those toys. There was an incredibly popular DC Universe cartoon show called Young Justice, and Young Justice was not just 
critically acclaimed, but it was beloved by fans. It was canceled because the average viewer was a woman, and so they couldn't get advertisers to market toys in that time slot, and toys keep animated shows on the air. So Young Justice, one of the most beloved DC animated shows of all time, was canceled for having the wrong commercial base. Things like that are are appalling. Yeah. I think for me, it's mostly that I just find the message of Contest of Champions confusing. I think they were confused about what they wanted to say. There are frequently moments where they try to highlight feminism and and encourage the notion of how powerful their female heroes are, and yet there are so few of them. This is ultimately, overall, just an advertisement for toys, and yet they inserted this weird, awkwardly written exchange between Sabra and Arabian Night, and why would you even put a narrative like that into what is ultimately just a toy commercial? So I think it's it's just very confused and muddled what exactly they were trying to do with some of the stuff in this. Why bother putting in anything at all if you're not going to be accurate or do what you're trying to do justice? That is really the core of the question, and I'm really glad that that's what we're asking. Hi, everybody. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I run the Cage Club Podcast Network and host way too many of its shows, like Too Fast, Too Forever, the Fast and the Furious podcast, Cruise Club, the Tom Cruise podcast, and Hangs for the Memories, the Tom Hanks podcast. Previously, on me talking about the few comic books I've read, I talked about how my dad read Crisis on Infinite Earths and the Death and Return of Superman to me. I also talked about my love of Sam and Max, including the comic book collection Sam and Max Surf on the Highway. Since then, I've read a few other titles. What I love about being a comic book baby is that there's so many collections that I can go out and buy and dive headfirst into the greatest stories of all time. I read The Long Halloween, I read The Killing Joke, I read The Dark Knight Returns, basically the greatest, or what I've been told, are the greatest Batman stories of all time. Do you have a suggestion for me? Let me know. The longest-running comic book I've read would have to be The Walking Dead. As I record this, the final issue released not too long ago. I came to the comics late after enjoying the first season of the TV show, and quickly caught up with the first two compendiums. I'd keep up with the six-issue compilations they'd put out, and when I heard the series was over, I rushed out, found the final seven issues, and read them. Now, I gave up on the TV show a few seasons back, and I considered bailing on the comic, too. You know, I loved it for so long, it was so good for so long, then, and I'll keep this spoiler-free, the survivors, the humans, the heroes, or are they the real Walking Dead, kind of figured out how to handle the problems that the walkers threw at them. I thought the comic wound up sort of running in place for a while, but I was really happy with how the last handful of issues turned out. If you haven't read The Walking Dead, now's a great time to start. There's a beginning, and there's an end. The comic does a lot of things that I really wish the show was able to do, but really couldn't because it was on AMC and not HBO. You know, Negan is so, so great in the comics, and I felt like he was fine on the show, but sort of a neutered version of himself. And I'm not sure if this is weird or this makes sense, but sort of my favorite things that the show ever did was not depicting my favorite moments from the comics, but rather depicting things that weren't in the comics at all. Like when Beth fought her way through a hospital that one season. I loved when the show was able to take the world that I had loved from the comics and sort of do its own twist on it. I felt like over time, just like the comics, the show sort of began dragging its feet a little bit. No zombie pun intended. Not really sure where to go next. It seems like the show is kind of winding down, and now that the comics have an end, I wonder if the show will follow in its footsteps. All I know for sure is that I've got to go out and find some more comics that Robert Kirkman has made. Anyone have any suggestions? 
If you want to know more about me, you can find all the shows I host at cageclub.me slash joey, or find me just about everywhere on the internet at soulpopped. Bonus points if you know what that's a reference to. I want to thank everybody for coming out, and I do believe that we have a contest to settle next time. So until that contest is settled, Kevo, where can everybody find you on the interwebs? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also find me on the Facebook page for Maya Nico's podcast, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Official HTML. And you can find our really cool, super inclusive, super diverse superhero stories over at KidRideComics.com. You know, I love being on all of those things with you. I just think you're the best. And you speaking are. of the best, I know you are. Speaking of the best, Kyle, where can everybody find you other than usually talking to me? You can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at Drantis82. Phenomenal. So, of course, Mikey, I need to know where all of your Alpha Flight fans can follow you. Twitter at MikeTheBorg9, and in a few weeks I'll have a podcast up called Pop Culture Federation. Pop Culture Federation? PCF? Why, that sounds pretty crazy fucking cool! That worked, I got there. <laughs> Speaking of pretty crazy fucking cool, Warpath Dylan of the House of X, where can all of your dazzling internet fans follow <laughs> you? What was that? Everyone can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan, and like Nico mentioned, you can find me on Facebook at my X-Men Facebook group that is titled House of X. And it is the House of Awesome, if you ask me. Now, there would be no Uncanny X's for podcast. Nay, there would be no X-Men comics at all, period, if it weren't for this guy. So Jonah, Jonah, since I just made you the de facto time travel retconned creator of the X-Men, you're like, Sage, where can everybody find you? In a first appearance that we technically don't even know about yet. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me being an asshole here on this show, evidently, but you can also find me making HTML, Husbands Talking More or Less, where my husband Kevo and I take a deep look. That's this Kevo, not like some other Kevo. I realized that that made that sound funny. Kevo and I take a look at things. I also make a music one where I take a look at music with my buddy Chris and I make a comic. This is that one. I'm on Instagram, Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I make music on Facebook, facebook.com slash Nico. No, slash action duo. I quit. Goodbye. Thanks. Contest of champions. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye.